We're in Exodus 23 tonight, so please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 23. Let's pray together. Maybe you have uh, specific prayer requests on your heart tonight as we come into the Lord's presence and specific praise, specific things that you're thankful for. And we have an amazing opportunity to draw near uh, to the Lord. As we're going to see in our section of Scripture tonight with the law, they weren't invited near, but we're invited near because of the blood of Jesus. So let's take advantage of that and come to the throne room of God. So, Father, we do thank you that you welcome us into your presence as our dad because of the blood of Jesus, because of the sacrifice of Christ. We thank you that we're in relationship with you, that we're your sons, your, your daughters, your children. And just give this specific praise to the Lord tonight that you're thankful for, about who he is and what he's done. And then offer those requests before the Lord. Lay them at his feet. There's nothing too difficult for him, nothing too big for him. And Father, we just receive your peace tonight, your peace that surpasses understanding. May it guard our hearts and minds. We love you in Jesus' name, amen. One of the great things that we have in our city is our zoo. If you'd been, been there, I think you would agree. A wonderful view of our city from the zoo. Don't know too many zoos that are on a mountain like that. But the view of the city from Cheyenne Mountain Zoo is very different than Academy and Awesome Bluffs. We're in the center of the city, aren't we? I was here at this intersection, and I was thinking, this has to be one of the busiest intersections in the city, right here. But when you're up, and you're on the bluff, on the mountain, looking over the city, you see the beauty of the city. As we study the scriptures, it's important to have that big view, that view from the mountain, of you would, of the scriptures, Genesis to Revelation, as well as studying it in detail. We're going through the section of the law where God gives the law to the children of Israel. And it's hard for us sometimes as believers to know, well, what does the law have to do with my life? And why would we study it? Why would we take time to study the law like this? And the law is very important because it shows us our need for a savior. That's the purpose of the law, to be our tutor, our schoolmaster, to drive us to the feet of Jesus, say, I need a savior. If we're not convinced that we need a Savior, the law is going to convince us that we need our Savior. It reminds us of how deep the sacrifice of Christ is. How the law requires restitution and Christ paid the penalty for, your, for our sins and provided restitution. Once we've come to know Christ as our Savior, righteous living doesn't go out the door. But it's Christ in us who enables us to be able to live out a righteous life. The law is summed up in love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And it's Christ in us. It's the same grace that saves us, that equips us to be able 
to love God and to be able to love our neighbor. So let's look in verse 1 of chapter 23. We see God's heart for justice. You shall not circulate a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. This goes to the ninth commandment of the Ten Commandments, that you shall not bear false witness. God goes into detail here. Don't circulate a false report. Don't put your hand in with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. A false report can really destroy someone's life. It can destroy their character. And so part of loving God and loving others is don't enter into a false report. In verse 2, you shall not follow a crowd to do evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after many to pervert justice. You may find yourself in a situation where the majority is going in the direction of this false witness, but you know what the truth is. So God says, don't follow a crowd into evil. Choose to do what's right. Even if everybody else is giving this false witness, you share the truth. Don't turn aside from justice. Don't pervert justice. God would want to give us courage in the midst of that to say, I know what the truth is and I'm going to be able to stand up. I think many times when we see a crowd going in the direction of evil, we go, what good does it do if I speak up? I'm just one voice for truth and there's so many voices for evil. There's so many voices for this false witness. But remember, we serve the God that is not limited. He is limitless. And he honors that one voice that speaks up for truth. How many times in scripture does God use the individual? How many times in history was it one person that said, no, I'm not going with the crowd. I'm not going with this injustice. I know what the truth is, so I'm going to speak up. Maybe in our workplace, could be in our neighborhoods, our families, but we may find ourselves in that situation where we have to speak the truth and not compromise with a false witness. You shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. So God desires for there to be justice no matter if you're rich or poor. No matter if you're famous or you're a nobody. And he says, don't fall into this temptation to not give justice to the poor. Don't show partiality when it comes to justice. Verse 4, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden, and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. Jesus expounded on this and told us to love our enemies, to do good to those who persecute us, that even the sinners and the tax collectors know how to love those who love them. But this is difficult. If you find your enemy's ox, right? Like, what am I going to do? Turn a blind eye? Maybe shoot it in the head? That's a better idea, right? This is my enemy's donkey that we're talking about here. But God calls us to say, I'm going to go ahead and return this to my enemy. Here's my enemy's donkey under a burden. So it's collapsed under the burden and you would refrain. Everything in your flesh and your logic says, I'm not going to help that donkey because it belongs to my enemy. But because of our love for God, because of the reality of Christ in us, to be able to serve our enemy. 
This takes a living Savior living inside of us. Christ's help inside of us to say, this is how I would treat an enemy, but this is how God is calling me to be able to treat an enemy. You shall not pervert the judgment of your poor in his dispute. God, again, being an advocate for the poor. Keep yourselves far from a false matter. Do not kill the innocent and the righteous, for I will not justify the wicked. Don't get involved with a false matter. Don't kill the innocent with with the righteous. God is able to define that line and say, here's the wicked and here's the righteous. And God would desire for us to do justly as well. God's not going to justify the wicked. In verse 8, And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the discerner and perverts the words of the righteous. Much of the international world is corrupt through bribery. A lot of countries, the the police can be bought off. They can be bribed. A judge can be bribed. You can buy off the president. You can buy off uh, the government. And we have some of those issues here. It's not like we're we're immune uh, from that. And sometimes those things take place in, in the United States. But when you get into particular countries throughout the world, you just see how their justice is so twisted because it's a system of bribery. It's not a system of there's right and there's wrong. It's a system of who has the most money. So if you can pay me the money, then you're innocent. But if you can't pay me the money, then you're guilty. In verse 9, And you shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the heart of a stranger, because you are strangers in the land of Egypt. So you guys know what it's like to be a stranger, to be a foreigner. So when foreigners come into Israel... Remember that. You know the heart of a stranger and treat them the way that you would want to be treated. Maybe you've had this experience. Maybe you've lived in another country internationally. Or maybe you even had to change cities at some point in your life and you realize, I'm an outsider. I don't belong around here. But it's intimidating to come into a culture that you don't know, that you don't understand, you don't know the language, you don't have friendships, you don't have have family. And God says to the children of Israel, I want you to treat the stranger with, with kindness. I think this verse speaks to a larger topic, and it's remembering what God has done for us. Remember what we felt like before we knew Christ our Savior, and look to those who don't know the Lord. Look to those who are on the outside and welcome them in. Now, what I'm going to say is not very politically correct. Surprise, surprise, if you've come here very long, right? I understand that there are concerns for us as a country when it comes to refugees. And I think our country has to be wise in how it allows refugees to come in to our country. And that's one topic in and of itself. But biblically, Genesis to Revelation, as individuals, we need to have a heart for the refugee. We need to have a heart for the person that because their country is in complete turmoil and there's war and they're fleeing their country to say God's heart is for them. God's heart is for the nations. And us as Americans, we can't imagine anything happening to America. This is the almighty dynasty that's always going to be the way it's been. But that's not true when we look at history. 
And there could be turmoil that comes into our country. We could find ourselves being in a position of being the refugee, right? So God's heart is for the refugee. How our government sorts that out and people coming into our country, should it be done legally? Yes. But whenever we develop a mentality of I've got mine and nobody else can have it, that doesn't represent the heart of the gospel, right? That doesn't represent who God is. God says, blessed are those who who give, for they shall receive. It's an opportunity to be able to love with God's love with the gospel. So something to pray about, something to think about. I know it's a bit challenging. So that's God's heart for justice, and we see God's heart for rest in verse 10. Six years you shall sow your land and gather its produce, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie foul. That the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. In like manner, you shall do with your vineyard and your olive grove. Pretty nice. What if you worked for six years and you knew every seventh year you had it off? Now work hard, plant, 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 plant. Then the seventh year, it was that year to be able to rest. It sounds good, but I think it'd be a little bit difficult because you're so used to working. And all of a sudden, you're not working and you're letting the field rest. What are you going to do for that year? Might find yourself arguing with your spouse more than you would normally, right? So you need to go back to work. You're, you're causing too much trouble around here. It would take trust in the Lord to choose to not work that seventh year. And then let the poor come and eat whatever grows off of your land. So you're not dependent upon anything coming from the field for the seventh year. Also trust in the Lord that God's going to provide enough in six years to last for seven years. And in this process of journeying, if you were going to be obedient to the seventh year rest, you'd have to start preparing. Okay, we've got a little bit extra. We need to save it. We need to prepare to be able to take this rest before the Lord. What we know now is you can't just plant in the ground every year. You can't do that for 50 years, 100 years. You're going to totally rob the ground of its nutrients. The land literally needs rest. In the Midwest with the Dust Bowl, that was largely due to the fact that we just overworked the land. And then we got the dust bowl as a, as a result of it. Then God specifically on the seventh day says, Six days you shall do your work, and on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may rest, and the son of your female servant and the stranger may be refreshed. So rest the seventh day so you can be refreshed, the stranger can be refreshed, your family can be refreshed, even your animals can be refreshed. Even the animals need rest. Now, how does this fit in for us in the new covenant of God's grace? Are we required to hold to the Sabbath strictly on the seventh day? Ultimately, Jesus is our Sabbath rest. The Sabbath was a shadow of the reality of Christ who provides the rest for us. So we don't have to observe the Sabbath in a strict sense, but it's a principle that's going to serve us well if we choose to rest.
if we choose to rest and say, I'm going to glorify God by stop working. I'm going to work six days and the seventh day I'm going to rest, draw near to the Lord, spend, spend time with family and rest comes. So if you're taking notes, write this down. Rest brings refreshment. Rest brings refreshment. That's what's promised here with the Sabbath. So that the stranger, the servant, and even the ox could be refreshed. Now, how might this look from a guy that works his cattle every day, his oxen, his donkeys, and then another family that chooses to allow their oxen to rest? Could you observe a refreshed ox? <laughs> That's what it's stating here, that even the animals are, are going to be refreshed. I wonder if you could take a handful of people where you took someone who works seven days a week, sun up to sundown, and you took someone that chose to set aside a day to rest, and you could spot it. You could go, you're a workaholic, you're burning yourself out, you seem refreshed. I'm looking for a shortcut on this one, aren't you? Right? Oftentimes we're going, I want the refreshment without the rest. I want to just go, 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 do, 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 all the time, and also have the refreshment. And it doesn't work this way. To be able to, to rest. To say, Lord, I want to set aside a day to be able to stop working, to be able to rest, to enjoy you, to enjoy the provision that you have put into my family. How all of this works, I think, is between you and the Lord. But the important principle is take that time to rest. I believe that giving and rest are very tangible acts of faith. When we give financially to the Lord and we rest, we're showing that, God, you've got this. This doesn't all rest upon my shoulders. In verse 13, in, in all that I said to you, be circumspect and make no mention of the name of other gods, nor let it be heard from your mouth. Guard yourself against idolatry. Three annual feasts that the children of Israel were to observe and specifically come and present themselves in worship. Three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. You shall eat unleavened bread seven days, as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty. So the first feast was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, remembering when God brought them out of Egypt, celebrating deliverance seven days with unleavened bread. Bread is good. There's a reason that Jesus said, I am the bread of life, because bread is so good, right? But unleavened bread is not so good. Amen? So this is seven days, peanut butter and jelly, unleavened bread, right? Spaghetti, unleavened, however you do that. French bread, unleavened. You got kids in the home and you're like, hey, mom and dad, what happened? Something went wrong here, right? What's going on? And it was the time to be able to say, look, the leaven represents sin and a little bit of leaven affects the whole lump and God wants us to be set apart to him. And ultimately, Jesus is the one who purifies us. Jesus is the one that takes the leaven out of us because he's the perfect and, and spotless lamb. So, once a year, they were to do that feast. And the feast of harvest, the first fruits of your labors, which you have sown in the field, and the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you have gathered in the fruit of your labors, three times in the year all of your males shall appear 
before the Lord. The next feast is the feast of first fruits. Offering up to the Lord the first set of fruit that comes in from the spring harvest. It would be the springtime. And then in the fall, September of October, when there was harvest again, it was another time to worship the Lord in giving their first fruits to the Lord. I like the way that this is described by Walvard and Zuck in the Bible Knowledge Commentary. It says, The first of these great agriculture feasts was a memorial to the hasty exodus from Egypt. The second feast in which two loaves made of new grain were presented to the Lord was also called the Feast of Weeks because it was celebrated s- seven weeks after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, roughly 50 days after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In the New Testament, it's called the Day of Pentecost. The third festival, the Feast of Ingathering, at the end of the agriculture or civic year was called the Feast of Tabernacle or the Feast of Booths. So these are the feasts that they were to celebrate. Now some would ask, are we required under the new covenant to celebrate these feasts? You can if you'd like. Christ is the fulfillment of these feasts, but it's not put on us in the new covenant. Again, this is a shadow that pointed to Christ. The reality is is Christ. Verse 18, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor shall the fat of my sacrifice remain until morning. The emphasis, it's my sacrifice. This is an offering unto me. The first of the first fruits of your land shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. So bringing the first fruits, acknowledging that it all belongs to the Lord. Then this obscure command in the law, not to boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Because of this, kosher Jews will not have a cheeseburger. You won't see a devout Jew eating meat with their dairy because of, of this verse. I think they've taken it a little bit far. The background to this is the Canaanites would cook the calf in its mother's milk. And God, again, is warning to stay as far away from possible at, from idolatry. But the instruction here is not to boil a young goat in its mother's milk. It doesn't say that you can't eat meat and cheese together, but that's how they've applied it. Got to be honest with you guys, I've never struggled with eating a cheeseburger. I've always felt peace with the Lord with that. But. Verse 20, Behold, I am an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you in the place which I have prepared. God gives this promise and says, I'm sending an angel before you to keep you and also bring you into the promised land. Beware of him and obey his voice and do not provoke him. For he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversary. God is emphasizing obedience. He says, if you obey the message that the angel brings... There's going to be protection. There's going to be blessing. But if you disobey, there's going to be consequences. This sums up the message of the law, is if then. If you obey, then you're blessed. If you disobey, then you are cursed. You're under the consequences. And thankfully, Jesus died on the cross for us. 
where it's not an if-then relationship with God, but since Christ has died for our sins, we're the object of God's grace through, through faith. In verse 23, for my angel will go before you and bring you into the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. God's saying, I'm going to bring you into the promised land. It's not going to be on your own strength. God is going to provide the victory. Verse 24, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them nor do according to their works, but you shall utterly overthrow them and completely break down their sacred pillars. God knew the temptation as they came into the promised land was to serve the false gods. All the ites that we just read, they serve false gods. So God's saying, look, don't fall prey to their false gods. Here's the exhortation. So serve the Lord your God and he will bless your bread and your water. And I will take sickness away from the midst of you. No one shall suffer miscarriage or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. God's saying, look, serve me and I will bless you. Is there a blessing that comes with serving the Lord? Absolutely, undeniably. But is it always physical? Can we take this verse and apply it and say, if I serve the Lord, I'm never gonna be sick. If I serve the Lord, there's never gonna be miscarriage in, in, in my family. Does that line up with scripture from Genesis to Revelation? Well, Jesus suffered, and he was the ultimate righteous one. Paul suffered, and he was not half bad, right? He's not Jesus, but he lived a righteous life, and he suffered. He had a thorn in his flesh that God chose to not remove. So please don't put this on your shoulders and go, well, if there's something difficult in my life, it must mean that I'm not serving the Lord. Job suffered. And he was serving the Lord. So yes, there is suffering that comes. This isn't a promise to say, well, if you serve the Lord, there's not going to be suffering in our lives. But it is true that there is a blessing that comes with serving the Lord. Sometimes that blessing, though, is not physical. Why this is so important is some really twist this and teach that, well, if you had faith and you serve the Lord, then you wouldn't have cancer. Well, if you had faith and you serve the Lord, you wouldn't have financial financial difficulty. And we know that there's difficulty in this life. Verse 27, I will send my fear before you. I will cause confusion among all the people to whom you come and will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. In verse 28, and I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, and the Hittite from before you. I will drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you've increased and you inherit the land. God says, when I give you the land, it's gonna be little by little. Otherwise, the land would become desolate, it'd be too much for you to take care of, or the beasts of the field would become too numerous. So second thing to write down tonight is victory often comes little by little. Victory often comes little by little. God in his wisdom says to the children of Israel, I'm not going to give you the promised land in one day. It's going to happen over a one-year period of time so that the land isn't desolate, so the beasts of the fields don't take over. When it comes to our spiritual victories in our life, sometimes God allows it to happen in a moment. 
He breaks that stronghold in our life. There's a real change in our character that happens and, and takes place. And that's wonderful when that happens. But that's not always the case. Sometimes God does a work in our anger little by little. Little by little. Sometimes he'll take it all away in a moment. But other times he's saying, press into me and I'm going to transform your character over time. Why would God do it in little increments? Because it builds our character and it builds our trust in him. When that change happens over a period of time, ultimately we're stronger in the Lord than if the change just happened in an instant. So don't be discouraged. (laughs) Maybe there's been an area that God's been working on you in or you've been pressing into and you say, I I feel like throwing in the towel. I don't feel like I've grown at all. Nope, God's doing a work little by little. Keep pressing in, keep pressing in. And most of the time when we look back, spiritual growth is something over a a five-year period, over a 10-year period. We go, wow, God's really changed me in this area. So victory often comes little by little. Keep pressing in, keep being faithful. God in his wisdom knows why he's doing it. God gives the boundaries to the children of Israel, and I will set your bounds from the Red Sea to the sea, being the Mediterranean Sea, Philistia from the desert to the river, the Jordan River. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before. The children of Israel never fully inherited all the promised land that was given to them. Much like us, we don't enter into all the promises that God has given to us in his word. You shall make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. And this is exactly what happened and took place for the children of Israel. The Canaanite gods, they ended up serving these false gods and they became a snare to the children of Israel. We go to chapter 24. Now he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 the elders of Israel and worship from afar. God speaks to Moses, to Aaron, to the other leaders and says, I want you to come up. I want you to worship me on Mount Sinai, but you've got to keep your distance. And this is because of the holiness of God. A God is a consuming fire. And if it weren't for Jesus, that would continue to be the message of God. Don't get too close because I'm holy and you're a sinner. But because of Christ, Because of his death, because of his resurrection, what happened the moment that Jesus died, declared it's finished, the veil in the temple was torn in two. God was making a statement where he's saying, you are welcome. Now it's not stay your distance, but God says, come near. To where the promise of God is, if you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. The book of Hebrews tells us, let us come boldly into the throne of God. God's message is you have access, you have an invitation, you have the right to be here, not because you deserve it, but because Jesus' sacrifice is that worthy. What an amazing gift that God has given to us that we get to come near, that we get to draw near to him instead of, hey, why don't you keep your distance, right? God does this at this period of time to show us how much we need Christ. But now that Christ has been given to us, 
we get to come near. We get to come boldly. Verse 2, and then, and Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with them. So Moses is the only one that's able to come near. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and the judgments, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has said we will do. Moses hears from the Lord, gives the law to the people, and the people are like, yeah, we're in. We're in, Mo, 100%. Everything it says to do, we'll do. The flesh is willing, but the spirit is weak, isn't it? This shows how frail we are. A lot of times when it comes to God's commands, we're like, yep, God, I'm in. I'm going to obey. But like the children of Israel, we fall short. We need a Savior. It reminds me of doing a workout. So my family and I, we try to get over here to Trinity Fitness. It's right behind uh, the church. It's a nonprofit gym where they start with a devotional and end with some prayer requests. And it's metabolic conditioning, a lot of body weight stuff. And sometimes I'll come in and look at the battles, what they call it. And they put it on the whiteboard. I'm like, I got this. I'm in. Everything the battle says to do, I'll do. Sometimes with the battle, it'll be like four movements. Pull-ups, push-ups, burpees, sit-ups. Easy. Got this, right? But they do it in such a way, and so many times, as you get into it, you're humbled. And there's muscle fatigue. I can't do this. At the beginning, I thought I could do this, but now that I'm in it, I realize I cannot do this. I need a savior. Can someone save me? Could you do my pull-ups for me, please? Right? I I need some help here. And that's how it is with the law. That's how it is with the word of God. Many times we're like, oh, I got this. No problem. You bet, Lord. And then we are in the midst of it, and we fail, and we realize, Jesus, please save me. If I'm going to be able to live a righteous life, it's going to be you, Jesus, who's, who's helping me. In verse 4, And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, the foot of Mount Sinai, and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in a basin and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Remember Moses and the leaders are being called up to to worship and Moses knows that he can't approach the Lord without sacrifice, without a blood sacrifice, ultimately pointing to how we need the blood of Jesus. Then he took the book of the covenant, the law, and read it in the hearing of the people and they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. We're, We're in, we're committed And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. A blood covenant. It's the only time in Scripture where the people are sprinkled with blood. This shows the seriousness of the contract. The idea is, if you break this covenant, let your blood be upon it. And the old covenant is a two-way agreement similar to contracts that we know today. You might have a contract with AT&T for your cell phone and your cable or whatever, and you pay them this amount of money, and they're going to provide these cell phones and this internet connection. 
But what happens when you stop paying your money? Well, then your cell phones go away. Then your internet goes away. And then you owe them even more money because you entered into some type of contract. But it's a two-way agreement. And that's how the old covenant was, where God's saying, if you're obedient, I'll do this. But if you're disobedient, I'll do this. But with the blood of Jesus, it's also a blood covenant, but it's his commitment to us that we receive through faith. Where it's what Christ has done for us, where we trust in his finished work that brings grace and forgiveness into our lives. And then out of the gospel, out of the grace and the forgiveness of God, we go, Lord, I get to serve you. I want to serve you and help me to live a righteous life unto you. In verse 9, And Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the seventy elders of Israel. How did Aaron do in the process of this 40 days? Moses goes all the way up to spend time with the Lord. Aaron gets impatient, the people get impatient, and he decides to make a golden calf. He fails miserably in the midst of of this process. In verse 10, And they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and it was like the very heavens in its clarity. So it says that Moses, Aaron, the 70 elders, they saw the Lord. And you may at this point go, this is confusing because you know what John says, John 1.18, that no man can see God at any time. So if no man can see God at any time, then how about this, where this group of men, the scripture says, saw the Lord. Similar to Isaiah 6.1, where it says that Isaiah saw the Lord. And it's answered for us in John 12. And I'll read it to you because Jesus talks about when Isaiah saw the Lord and he points out that Isaiah was seeing Christ. He says, but although he had gone, had done so many signs before them, this is John 12 verse 37, they did not believe in him. That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so I should heal them. And here's the key. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him, Jesus. So Isaiah saw Jesus. These men here in Exodus are seeing Jesus. So we're allowed to see Jesus in this human frame, but we're not allowed to see the Father until we're glorified to be with the Lord. So John 1 is true when no one can see God at any time because it's referring to the Father, but we are allowed to see Christ, Christ's glory, God in in human flesh. Or I should say, people have been allowed to see Christ in his human flesh. In verse 11, But on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hands. So they saw God, and they ate and drank. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and be there, and I will give you tablets of stone and the law and commandments which I have written that you may teach. So Moses arose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up to the mountain. Very wise of Moses to bring Joshua. 
Joshua is going to be the one who leads the children of Israel into the promised land. Much of the learning in scripture is more caught than taught. It's spending time with godly people who have walked before you in their relationship with the Lord. Joshua's taking this all in. He, he doesn't get to go all the way up to the top like Moses, but he's the closest audience to this whole thing that's taking place. And over time, Moses' relationship with God, it wears off on Joshua. And so as we're looking for mentors and looking to be discipled, a lot of times it's just spending time with people who love the Lord and watching and learning from their relationship with the Lord. And if you've walked with the Lord for a period of time, is look for somebody who's new in the Lord and just say, hey, come with me. Do what you do. You're going to spend time on God's word? Hey, come with me. You're going to go reach out? Hey, come with me. You're going to go serve in the church? Hey, come with me. And that's what God is, is doing here in training up Joshua is Moses just simply says, hey, why don't you come along? It's a great way to invest. In verse 14, and he said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Indeed, Aaron and Ur are with you. If any man has difficulty, let him go up to them. Then Moses went up into the mountain, and a cloud covered the mountain. Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days, and on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. So six days, the cloud is resting. Moses is hanging out there with the Lord. But it wasn't until the seventh day that God reveals himself. So this is another point to be able to consider is hearing from God takes time. Hearing from God takes time. Moses had to wait here for a while, six days. And I wonder if he's starting to ask the question, God, why did you bring me up here? (laughs) I got things to do. There's a whole multitude, million plus down there that needs my leadership. But Moses has the wisdom to say, hey, the cloud's here. God's presence is here. God's called me here. I'm going to hang out in the cloud and just wait, just wait, wait some more, wait some more, and God will reveal himself when he's ready. So it takes time to hear God's voice. In verse 17, the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain and the eyes of the children of Israel. So God's message about himself from Mount Sinai is I'm a consuming fire. With a fire that's consuming is not very approachable, is it? It's impressive, it's powerful, but you're not going to get close because it's going to burn you up. And God is that powerful that apart from Jesus, he's this consuming fire that we cannot approach. What's the message from Mount Calvary? The message from Mount Calvary is grace. It's God's unconditional love. It's Jesus being the sacrifice for our sin. But we wouldn't appreciate Mount Calvary where Jesus died if it wasn't for Mount Sinai. Mount Mount Sinai shows us our need for a savior that can provide forgiveness of sin and bring us into the presence of, of a holy God. So we're thankful for both. We're thankful for the revelation of God at Mount Sinai that points us to our need for grace at Mount Calvary. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. What an awesome time for Moses, just him and the Lord. God's speaking to him. God's given him the law. He's seen God's glory, right? 
doesn't it make you long for heaven a little bit? How wonderful it's going to be able to be in God's presence. So what's the big application of these two chapters? The big application is the law shows us that we need a Savior. The law shows us that we're sinners before a holy God and we need Jesus to die for our sins and rise again. And at no point do we ever get to a place where we don't need the sacrifice of Christ. We never outgrow our need for Jesus to die upon the cross for our sins. Church, I'm so thankful that Jesus came to us and said, this is the covenant of my blood. This is my body that was broken for you. This is my blood that was shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We're going to celebrate communion tonight. God's saying, I don't want you to ever forget that it's about what my son has done for you. His was body was broken so that we could be made whole. His blood was shed so that we could be forgiven. Do you have a Mount Sinai relationship with God or a Mount Calvary relationship with God? Do you come to the Lord based on your works and your effort? Okay, Lord, I've kept the law, so now bring your blessing. Or do we come before the Lord and go, God, you know my heart. You know that I'm sinful before you, and I'm trusting in the blood of Jesus. And I'm so thankful that my sins are forgiven. I want to serve you. I want to be a living sacrifice. I want to follow you. So that's the big application of this. That's the Cheyenne Mountain view of the scriptures. It's so important. So what's a small takeaway from us? What's something that we can apply in a smaller dose? Well, rest comes through refreshment. 